This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics show. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me this week, as he is every week, is my esteemed co-host Matthew Rushing, who is smiling ear to ear right now because Dayton Ward snagged something really special for him. You know, that's true, Chris. Um, they had the shore leave convention a few weeks ago. It was actually the same time as the Vegas convention. And shore leave is known as a convention where the Star Trek authors will gather and they do some great panels. And it's also apparently just a great place to hang out with them at the bar and have a great time. Well, if you didn't know this, Rob Caswell, who did the artwork for the brand new Star Trek Seekers series, put which to- we're going to talk about. A lot in the future. Exactly. David Mack. Um, well, uh, Caswell put together a great poster just for this convention. And, of course, that convention is all the way on the East Coast. I'm here on the West Coast, and so it's very difficult to get over there. And, and so I contacted a good friend of the show, Dayton Ward, and asked him if, if there were any left or if he had the availability just to snag me one if he could. So he did, and he's going to be sending that to me. And I'm so excited. It's going to go in here in my office with some of the rest of my beloved Star Trek things and, and uh, pictures. So uh, it'll look great. I'm, I'm really excited about it. And I'm really excited, too, because after you put it on your wall, you're going to snap a photo of it and then send that to me. And then I'm going to blow that up and put that on my wall. Exactly. Since <laughs> getting anything to you, Chris, in Japan costs an absolute fortune. It does. <laughs> So uh, so you're going to email me the photo and then I'll just blow it up. There you go. <laughs> just tweet it to you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Matthew, one thing that I do have on my walls here are pages from the Ships of the Line calendars. And they're, they're often from previous years because the great thing about those calendars is the starships take center stage. And it doesn't really matter what year they're from. They still look great hanging on your wall. And this new Ships of the Line book is due out in October, and we've got some cover art right here. So if we're going to judge this by its cover, are we going to judge Ships of the Line book by its cover? Judging Ships of the Line by the cover. Of course we're going to judge it by <laughs> book by its cover, Chris. And I would say, I mean, this is by Doug Drexler, the man, the myth, the legend himself. And so, of course, this is getting the stamp of sufficiently exciting. I mean, the front cover here, Chris, has all of these beautiful starships from Starfleet on it. And on the back, you've got all of the alien ships and or yeah. sometimes bad guys. So it's yeah. just fantastic. I like the back cover, personally. Back cover, but the front looks great. 
But of course, the, the color scheme of Starfleet ships is very, very similar across the fleet. The back cover is really, really cool. I mean, this is just amazing work. And, and I mean, I, I think that when you look at the calendar, every year you're just kind of blown away by what these guys do digitally with these starships and just giving us some amazing scenes just imaginative beautiful scenes of some of our favorite ships maybe in positions that we've never seen before um you know from a different angle something like that i mean it sounds like we're talking about women here uh, but we're not it's just star trek ships and i think this is why chris (laughs) those starship collectible ships that you like to get are so popular right now i mean we all Mm -hmm. just love the starships and i'm so excited i mean you know, they put this book, the original book out years ago, and obviously, you know, they've been collecting images now for over a decade with the, the Ships Align calendars. So Margaret Clark and Doug Drexler have put together an entire new book with commentary by Mike Kuda that it's going to be coming out in October. So this is perfect for any Star Trek fan for Christmas. I mean, I think it's probably going to be on my list uh, because this is actually going to be the last thing that we'll see from Ships of the Line. The calendar is going away, which is kind of yeah, sad. So, which is sad. Uh, but yeah. to have this great collection back in a, this great coffee table book format, I just think is fantastic. Which is good for me because I actually, as a calendar, I'm not a big fan of the Ships of the Line calendar as a functional calendar. So I buy it, but I buy it just for the Starship images. And then I buy the other Star Trek calendar as my actual (laughs) functional calendar that I glance across the room at. So uh, I'm happy to have them in the form of a book. Now, when you say commentary by Michael Okuda, I'm just picturing what they should do is when you open the book, it should talk to you. It should be like those greetings cards where you, you you pull it open. It's got the little chip in there and it just has Mike talking. That would be cool. That would be really cool. Or, you know, have one of the, uh, you know, on the side, it has little buttons you can press for the page numbers. So you, when you get to page oh, one, uh-huh. you know, you press one and it tells you all about the artwork, about? the ship and everything for page one. Then you do page two and so on. What about Matthew? And, and you, even though you don't have kids, you're probably going to know about this because you worked in the kids section, right? At Barnes and Noble for a while leapfrog ships of the line leapfrog you remember the leapfrog tablet where you touch the pen on the pages and it talks to you exactly see that would be great too so i it actually would be cool right as a children's product to help get people into star trek Trek. uh i think we should definitely be selling these ideas to pocket because and you know i don't this is good stuff um but i'm I'm really excited this is going to be coming out i love what they've been doing with star trek books lately and the fact that we are getting more of these um artwork type books or um coffee table type books non-fiction books there's a lot in star trek um and, and just design wise you know we talked about those books a few uh weeks ago chris that they're going to be bringing out about the costumes and and the costume design of star trek and there's going to be a whole new series on that there's just so much ingenuity and creativity that has gone into creating star trek that i think really can inspire others and so i'm glad to see that this kind of stuff is coming out because i think it's good for the franchise especially as we're kind of languishing right now waiting for something new to come out you know we no idea exactly when star trek quote unquote three 
or if it's mm-hmm. going to be Star Trek 16, Star Trek 17, who knows? 2016, yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, this I is agree. what's keeping it's... Star Trek alive, and it has for a long time. Yeah, it definitely is. So looking forward to this in October. And then the other item we have in news today is something else coming in October. And also, looking back into the past, these are the Gold Key Archives comics that IDW is doing. This is Volume 2. And actually, Matthew... This cover that we're looking at here right now reminds me of something that I have not yet gotten my hands on and I have to go search for in order, which are those Gold Key comic Star Trek vehicles that Hot Wheels put out. The oh, pop yes. Yeah, they did. Have you seen those in the stores? I have. In not in the stores, okay. but I've seen them like on online when I'm looking at like Entertainment Earth or Big Bad Toy Store okay. or something like that. Um, yeah. I have seen a few of those. Those are really cool. Um, I have to get those. Now, Chris, you know, for the first time, I, I was at Barnes & Noble a few weeks ago, and I saw the original Gold Key Archives book one, and I really, really like it. In fact, we're, we're going to need to review um, these sometime soon because it's beautiful. You know, the artwork is, is kind of cheesy. These are the original Star Trek comics ever. Like, these are the first ones. So, but the restoration job of them is fantastic. You can buy them digitally and in book form. The hardcover book form is is just brilliant. Uh, volume two is what's going to be coming out in October, and uh, mm-hmm. the Trek Collective had given us a great look at some of the inside pages that we're going to be seeing. Um, in fact, the first story from it is called "The Voodoo Planets." <laughs> Wow. Well, okay, so you and I tend to buy our comics digitally, our Star Trek comics anyway, digitally. And you've seen this in hardcover at Barnes & Noble. What do you recommend? Is this one of those books where you recommend people buy the hardcover? You know, that's a really hard question because I've been debating on what to do myself. Mm -hmm. The nice thing is, is that the digital version is less expensive but the hardcover version is really nice. They've done a great job of restoring the pages and the artwork. It looks fantastic. The the, the pages are kind of that thicker material. Um, mm-hmm, like art paper. Exactly. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and it's glossy. I, I like it a lot. So I'm myself uh, just kind of torn as to what to do. I think either way, I'm going to be very happy with what I get. Uh, I, I think the job that IDW has done in cleaning up these comics and making them presentable in a way that maybe they weren't even beforehand is fantastic. It, it, it reminds me of when Lucasfilm went back and remastered Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I saw it again, and it looked better than it ever had before. I mean, colors were mm-hmm. popping in ways mm-hmm. that they never had, even maybe originally, because of how they were able to clean up the negative. And I kind of feel that way about these comics, and so... Um, and this is just a fun look, I think, at the origin of Star Trek comics and very much worth anybody's buy. Yeah, that's I would probably lean towards the hardcover myself in this one if I could get my hands on it at a reasonable price here in Japan. There is a bookstore in Shinjuku in the middle of Tokyo in the, in the skyscraper district where they tend to have these hardcover like uh, Star Trek art books, for example, might be able to get my hands on it there. They typically don't have Star Trek comics, but this is one for me. I'd kind of like to hold that in my hands. Yeah. Can you, yeah. for somebody who who isn't in the States or something like that, is it 
does it cost a lot, Chris, for you to be able to get something like this from, say, an Amazon? Mm, it can, yeah, the shipping. Okay. Yeah. That's the problem with it is the shipping primarily. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So so this will be coming out in October, though, and I'm looking forward to seeing it, and I'm going to have to go investigate those Hot Wheels also. <laughs> that's <laughs> after awesome. This. <laughs> All right. Well, that's all we have in news today. We're going to be joined shortly by David Mack to talk about Seekers One Second Nature. Before we do that, Matthew, we need to tell everyone about our sponsor for today's show, audible.com. They're the best source for audiobooks that you're going to find anywhere. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice just for trying Audible if you go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Now, we usually recommend a Star Trek book here on the show, But Matthew, this week, I I wanted to recommend something that's not Star Trek. It's a novel that I've really been enjoying for a while now, in audio format in particular, because it's read by John Hodgman. And the book is called Year Zero, a novel. It's by Rob Reed. And basically, the premise of this book is that our television broadcasts go out into space, right? Well, eventually, there's this whole galactic civilization out there that uh, we're not a part of yet. And they're really, really into art. They love all kinds of art forms. And they receive our television transmissions, (laughs) and they fall in love with our music. And the first piece that really gets their attention is the theme from Welcome Back, Cotter. And they think it is the greatest musical composition that the universe has ever seen. And so then they start hearing music from other TV shows. So it's mainly TV theme songs that hook them in first. Well, they get so hooked on it that then they start finding out about all the different bands, all the different singers, and they start bootlegging all of our music, basically. (laughs) And they... Eventually, they find out that they've been violating copyright law. Oh, gosh. And that they owe Earth so much money that there's not enough money in the entire universe to pay the fees for all the music that they've stolen. And so some of them figure, well, the best solution might be to just destroy Earth. So that's the basic premise of the story. It's a hilarious story. And uh, it's written by someone who actually has dealt with the the legal side of the music industry. And he's really, really poking fun at how ridiculous our copyright laws are and how outdated they are. It's so funny because it sounds like the background story for Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's similar. It's it's written very much in the vein. I'm a huge fan of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I've I've loved it since I read the books when I was, I don't know, I was like nine or ten maybe. And I, I picked up the first book in a bookstore when you used to actually walk in a bookstore and, and buy books, small bookstores. Read them all, you know, many, many times. I love it. And if you love the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, then you'll absolutely love this book because the humor is very similar. Excellent. Yeah. And... The audio version I highly recommend because it's read by John Hodgman. And he just does an absolutely brilliant job with it. So pick this up again, Year Zero, colon, a novel. And you'll know it because you'll see it's a black cover with an alien face that looks like the greys, you know, the kind of almond-shaped head. Oh, yeah. Okay. But with, with headphones on. 
uh, just flat 2D illustration there. Highly recommended. And you can get it absolutely free if you go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm and sign up for the trial. And if you decide not to stick with Audible, you'll get to keep the book. So there's nothing to lose there. But when you try out Audible, you're really helping us keep literary treks coming to you every single week. So we really appreciate your support on that. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. Well, tonight we're very excited to talk about Star Trek Seekers number one, Second Nature, the series starring the characters and ships that you may have uh, read about in the Vanguard series. And we're also thrilled to have the author of the book, David Mack, back on the show to talk with us about his inaugural book for the series. David, welcome back to the show. Thank you, gentlemen. Great to be here. Yeah, great to have you here, David. So the last time that uh, we left Vanguard, everything had uh, been been kind of broken up in the series. Uh, the, it had gone the, down in flames. Exactly. I mean, it it was epic. Um, and so not all the fans may have read the Vanguard series, but I don't want that to, you know, they need to go out and read that because it's a great series. I'd like it if they did. Exactly. It, it helps the bottom line. Um, <laughs> but two, you know, so... How did um, you know you kind of go from the Vanguard series to the Seekers series, and um, you know there's some cool influences here too, fan wise, for how this series actually came to be. Well, it was kind of a long journey. Uh, what happened was around the beginning of 2012, when the final Vanguard book, Storming Heaven, was being released. Dayton. And uh, Kevin, that's Dayton Ward and Kevin Delmore, my uh, co-authors on the Vanguard series. We were hanging out with a bunch of other Star Trek authors in Kansas City, just kind of doing an author's conclave weekend. And we were walking around the Nelson Art Gallery in Kansas City. And we were trying to think of a new project to work on together because we had liked the chemistry that the three of us had with them alternating on one side, me on the other throwing stories back and forth, challenging each other, creatively developing ideas together. But we didn't want to just try to repeat what we'd already done on Vanguard because we know you can't capture lightning in a bottle twice. And as we were walking around talking about various ideas, one of the things that came up was that as we were bringing the Vanguard saga to a close, both our editors and the licensor, the folks who own Star Trek, had sort of expressed a bit of regret that we were bringing it to an end because they really liked Vanguard and they had loved our work on it and they had hoped that we could have continued it longer. And we said, well, what if we made a sequel to Vanguard? Nobody's ever done that in Trek books before, had a series of books deliberately designed as a sequel to another series of books with no TV antecedent. That could be interesting. And one of the notions that came up was that I had mentioned in some of the final chapters of Storming Heaven, that two of the ships that had been prominent in the Vanguard saga, the Constitution-class Endeavor, which is a ship like the Enterprise, and the Archer-class scout ship Sagittarius, which has a crew of 14 people, were both reassigned back out into the Taurus Reach, which was the principal setting of the Vanguard saga, and they were sent back out on a mission of pure exploration now that the great looming threat of the Shaddai from the Vanguard saga was resolved. Uh, but the, even though the political uh, qualms that, you know, the political rivalries that had driven that series were still in play, the field was now wide open. And Dayton said, well, you've already established those two ships are back out there. What if we did something where 
we have one book, you know, uh, features one ship and then we alternate and every other book features the other ship. And then we go back and forth and you take one ship and we take the other ship and we just do that and cross over every now and then when we have a good crossover idea. I said, that sounds really good, but you know, how do we do it? How do we brand it? How do we sell it? And up that point, as we were continuing the conversation, we had all seen independently the work of an artist named Rob Caswell. He's uh, both a fan and a professional illustrator. He's done work for uh, role-playing games. He actually had done some previous work for Star Trek publications through the FASA role-playing game side. Okay. Mm. And he had done a series of mock book covers. He had done them in the style of the old James Blish 1970s adaptation collections that were published by Bantam Books. Uh, back when James Blish was, you know, uh, basically adapting the episodes into short novellas, and then they would put four or five of them together and put them out in a paperback. And they had a very distinctive look and feel with these big numerals on the covers and use of vertical and horizontal mm-hmm. lines to sort of set apart areas of text and a very painterly look to the art. And Rob had captured this aesthetic perfectly with these mock covers he made for, uh, I, I guess, uh, an imaginary TV series. He had imagined an alternate reality in which Star Trek not only continued past its third season, it was so successful it spawned a spinoff called The Seekers, created by Gene Roddenberry. And the star of this show, The Seekers, the, the hero ship, if you will, was a little scout ship, an Archer-class scout ship like the one from Vanguard. So he managed to get, uh, you know, through some of his artist friends, a wireframe for 3D modeling of the Archer class scout ship. And he reskinned it and put his own little ID on it and uh, started creating these book covers. And uh, we saw these covers and we were just blown away by them because they captured everything that we had loved about the James Blish books, which mm-hmm. Dayton and I had both grown up reading and Kevin had grown up reading. These were the books that sort of, you know, first fanned my love for Star Trek after I grew up as a little kid watching it in syndicated reruns. These were some of the first tie-ins I ever read when I was very young. And here was this art that took something, you know, from uh, a project that Dayton and Kevin and I had helped bring into existence. And it took this one element and reimagined it as part of this legacy, this deep history uh, that we have with Star Trek and harkens it back to this earlier age. And we got to talking about that. We said, that would be really cool to do books with that look and feel, to bring back the old Blish anthology retro style, right down to the typography and the vertical lines and the classic, you know, kind of exciting imagery on the cover. And I said, and he even had the perfect name. You know, he calls his The Seekers. We could call ours Star Trek Seekers. We could just do that. And suddenly Dayton and Kevin and I were all very excited. Yeah, we could just do that. And then we realized, well, if we do that, we got to find a way to get Pocket and the licensor to hire this artist and bring him aboard as part of the team. Because at this point, we'll be taking his proof of concept, his title, uh, and you know all this other stuff, all this inspiration. It would be wrong to take all this for ourselves and not give something back and not acknowledge uh, his contribution or acknowledge it only with some throwaway line on an acknowledgements page. Right. And I said, really what this guy deserves is to join the team. He's clearly, mm. you know, demonstrated a vision that's in line with ours and 
we wanted a distinctive look and feel for the new Seeker series in much the same way Vanguard had had a very distinctive look and feel thanks to the art of Doug Drexler. Yes. And yeah. we said, we, you know, we don't want to just keep using Doug. And much as we love Doug, we wanted a new brand identity and a new feel for Seekers. And once we kind of sat down and took a fresh look at the work of Rob Caswell, we knew that was the look. And we said, that's it. That's the idea. How was Pocket when you approached them about that? Was there, was it easy to get Rob on board or did you really have to sell that idea? It was very easy. In fact, uh, it, it helped that our editors and the licensor trust us. We've earned a measure of professional uh, consideration from uh, the people we work with. And once we explained what it was we wanted to do and why we wanted to do it, they were very much on board with it. I mean, we also, we didn't just call them up willy-nilly and say, hey, by the way, we think you should hire this fan artist so we can make a new book series. <laughs> right. Aiden and Kevin and I, we sort of hashed it out. We knew, for instance, you know, not to say anything in public or say anything to the artist until we had sold our corporate masters on the idea. Mm-hmm. So Dayton put together a first draft of a sales pitch, which was basically just about a page and a half, sort of detailing the concept of the series and what it was we want to do and how it ties into Vanguard. And then he sent that over to me and I fleshed it out and I added a little bit more detail and I put in a page of the thumbnails of these book covers that Rob had created to sort of show this is the look and feel that we're talking about. This is why we think it's marketable and promotable and and what will make it unique. Kevin sort of took a last pass through it uh, with his keen eye for copy and for, you know, marketing sales techniques. And we got it really polished up and we sent it. It was like a, I think it was like a five or six page document as a formal sales pitch presentation to our editor. And she really loved it. And on our behalf, she passed it up the ladder to managing editorial. Managing editorial and the publisher were both very much on board with it. It was sent out to the licensor and the licensor was on board with it. And at no point did anybody ever say, we love it, but we'd like you to lose the artist. Uh, (laughs) That didn't come up. I think once they saw the art we were talking about and we explained why his vision had been so integral to what we were doing, Mm -hmm. I think they understood just as well as we did why it was important. Yeah, I think his art just, it captures so well the feel of the TOS era and the exploration and the things that hook people into Star Trek so much in the first place, especially those of us who grew up with TOS that, um, I mean, if I, if I knew nothing about Seekers and I just saw these books in the bookstore on the shelf, would immediately grab it and take it to the cash register just on that alone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was what we were going for was to have a very visually striking aesthetic. And I think part of what really works is the way he incorporates those subtle vertical and horizontal lines into his composition and then the way he chooses to have some elements foregrounded ahead of those lines while other elements remain behind those lines really gives a feeling of depth to Mm -hmm. his cover design uh like the first book you know he deliberately you know made the first two covers very different in terms of their color and their tone the first one is very sapphire blue the second one is very gold and I think we're going to be probably going red on cover three, just so we have the three principal Star Trek colors within the first three books. That's awesome. Good idea. Yeah, cool. Well, and what I think it goes to show is that, um, honestly, you can kind of judge a book by its cover. And it is a really important idea to to get somebody visually interested in 
your story by having a great cover. I mean, I've picked up and I worked at Barnes & Noble for three years and there were certain books that I would pick up because I liked the look of the cover. And some of my favorite series came because of that. Um, and so it is really important, I think, the the artwork uh, and in the you. I think the best part about Rob's artwork is you can just tell the love that comes through. You know, he, absolutely. He, he loves what he does, and and it's the same way when you open these Star Trek books, and I think you read through the authors that Pocket has right now. Uh, you can tell that they know and love what they do, and um, it, it shows. And that's why they they keep having you guys write books. And luckily, that's why you guys keep hitting uh, New York Times bestseller lists repeatedly. So, uh, you know, I think I think Seekers is is um, bound for. Uh, greatness with that because it, it has the things that you really need I think to make a great uh, especially tie-in media series good well from your lips to book scans ears brother there you go <laughs> <laughs> so um, coming out of, of Vanguard you know the, the series is is known especially um, with Star Trek fans of, of the lit it's it's known for its political intrigue um, it's very kind of uh, in some ways, Deep Space Nine-ish or Battlestar Galacta-ish, you know, it's kind very of much in the spirit it. of the rebooted Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a it's a gritty show. So, how is Seekers going to differ um, from that? And and then kind of how's that going to impact the character growth? Because a lot of times, I think as fans, we think of oh, gritty and more realistic as being where real character growth happens. So, how are y'all going to deal with that? Well, we deliberately chose not to try and repeat the formula of Vanguard. We didn't want to go back to just more dark, gritty political intrigue, partly because as an author, you get tired of writing the same thing over and over and you want a little variety, but also because we felt like, you know what, we've done that. We feel like we've done it well. We want to go back to an earlier era. We want to go back to a time when Star Trek felt about exploring, when it felt about going to strange new worlds, discover a people with a problem, help them out, leave the situation better than you found it, and move on and help someone next week. So we deliberately made a choice to leave behind the dark, gritty politics and embrace a more optimistic, pulpy SF, adventure of the week, alien of the week type of situation. As for how that impacts character growth and character development, it's basically about starting from different places and therefore having different objectives. A lot of people, I think, who tried out reading uh, Vanguard at the very beginning, the first book, Harbinger, were thrown a little bit by the fact that the characters were so dark, so flawed in so many ways. But that was a choice. They had to begin in bad places so that they had room to grow and improve. Mm. In many ways, Vanguard was a story about realizing one's own flaws and limitations, overcoming them, and then either finding redemption or finding a way to atone for the things one has done. And many of the storylines that run through Vanguard follow this paradigm of redemption and atonement, particularly with Reyes, who comes to regret his role in the national security state, to Prin who comes to regret having chosen uh, duty to country over love. Uh, You find it with Quinn, who struggles against alcoholism and battling with his demons and finding it easier to succumb than to continue to fight. 
uh, and he gets a brief shot of feeling like a hero and then has it all taken away and has to find a reason to go on again. Pennington, who maybe, you know, has his career pulled out from under him and then has to find a way to redeem himself, even though it's not necessarily his sin. But he did have sins unrelated to his professional life. And until he atones for those, he can't move forward. So this theme of atonement sort of ran through all of Vanguard. In order to have that theme, you have to have characters who have done something really bad so that they have something to atone for and be redeemed from. In Seekers, we're dealing with characters who have basically been far more pure and far less questionable throughout the Vanguard saga. These are the starship crews, the best of the best, the explorers, the scientists, the pure hearts who you send out to the stars. Most of these people are not as compromised or were not as compromised in the Vanguard saga, either politically or personally. So their character growth is going to come from learning to better themselves, learning to expand their minds. And that's part of why we introduce new characters like the Arcanite, Sengar Hesh, the new science officer aboard the Sagittarius. He's still adapting to starship service. He comes from a culture where he's got certain preset ideas about who can be in the in-group and who can't be. And he's feeling very homesick. He's feeling very lonely and he's feeling disconnected from the rest of the crew when we first meet him. So for him, his journey is going to be about learning to feel like part of a family aboard the scout ship. Some of the characters who are going to get a little more screen time in book three aboard the Sagittarius are one of the new field scouts who was introduced near the end of Vanguard, an Orion woman named Terrell. We're going to learn more about Terrell, and we're going to learn what makes her tick and what her psychological damage is and what she's going to need to do to get over it. And we're going to see how that plays out in her relationships uh, with some of the other members of the crew and so on and so forth. There's going to be weird little bits of friction, but we're, we're trying to keep it light. We're trying to keep it personable. We're trying to keep it fun. If Vanguard, you know, was all about being the Battlestar Galactica reboot of, of Star Trek, this is more about trying to be the Eureka or the Warehouse 13. Of Star <laughs> nice. Trek. Lighter, fun not so heavy, read it, not going to have to have too many nightmares about it. I mean, I, that doesn't mean we want to <laughs> skimp on the action. You know, we don't want to pull back and write a wimpy series. But at the mm -hmm. same time, we don't want it to be all doom and gloom. We've done that. We've been there. We want to move on and say they've been through their dark time. Now is the return of the light. Mm -hmm. How did you and um, Kevin and Dayton decide which ships that you would be writing? Did you all just, you know, Flip a coin or best two out of three falls. <laughs> no, actually, it was pretty That's... easy. It's, it's been clear even mm -hmm. during the writing of the Vanguard saga that I had a special place in my heart for the kooky little weirdos on the scout ship. Mm -hmm. And they just both gravitated to and had a natural affinity for the Endeavor and its very, you know, proud, disciplined uh, crew of go getters. So when it came time to say, well, how do we want to divide up? Seekers, it was very obvious. I said, "Well, if you guys don't object, I'm really kind of partial to the to the nut jobs on the scout ship." And, <laughs> and Dayton said, "That's fine. I I'm partial to the Endeavor, and I sort of love her crew, and I want to write her stories, and we'll cross them over as needs be." And I said, "Sounds to me like we got no problem. We're writing, you know, who we want to write." And that's it was that fast. I mean, basically, that happened. I think in the initial conversation back in the Nelson Art Gallery. 
So talk to us a little bit about uh, you and Dayton and Kevin kind of working together and, and crafting the stories and especially the inspiration for this uh, first story that we're going to get kind of get into here with Seekers number one. Well, with the genesis of the saga, we knew that we wanted to start with a two part story, one that would involve both ships, both crews, so that readers who pick up, let's say, book one have an incentive to then pick up book two and see the other side of this equation and get a feel for what we're doing in terms of how we're handing off authorially from one book to the next, how we're handing off narratively from one crew to the next on a book to book basis. So when it came time to sit down and craft a story, we started throwing some ideas around and the three of us drafted the master story outline that would become the first two books as a team. The three of us basically wrote one master story document. We made some notes about where we thought the best Mm -hmm. place to break after book one would be and how we would coordinate the handoff in terms of the driving element of the narrative. Like who has the most agency in the story from book to book in book one, it's all about the Sagittarius crew being first on the ground, laying the groundwork, collecting the data and then getting in over their head and calling in a mayday. And then book two is basically about Endeavor steps in to basically save the day, pick up the ball and take it the rest of the way for the touchdown. And we basically structured the story to accomplish those goals and make the handoff as smooth as possible. So if you look, for instance, at the title page, not the front cover, but the title page of each book, it says story by, and then it lists all three of our names. So we Mm -hmm. share story credit, uh, the three of us, on the first two books. Now, as far as the storyline and its inspirations, the storyline for book one is very simple. It could be described as the Sagittarius crew, this little team of scouts, picks up an energy reading of a very sophisticated nature, but from a very primitive planet where it should not be coming from. Intrigued, they choose to investigate. They discover that there is what appears to be a primitive agrarian culture living on one small island near the equator of this planet. This is a potential first uh, prime directive problem. So they send down a landing party with orders. Try not to mess things up. Try to avoid contact (laughs) if you can. We all know how that's going to work out. Classic. Right. And what's going on on the planet is that there is a culture that is composed primarily of adolescents and children, no adults. And what happens is that when a member of this species, the Tomal, gets to the cusp of adulthood, about what we would consider to be roughly the age of 18, 19, they begin to undergo what is known as the change with a capital C. And this turns them from a peaceful, agrarian, happy-go-loving, you know, hippie-type farmer alien into slightly maniacal, homicidal demigod. (laughs) I thought of them as like, yeah, (laughs) they reminded me of like Red Lantern Sith. Yes, Red Lantern Sith. Perfect. So... This, as this transformation begins, you have about a three-day hang fire period, more or less, at this point, to say, all right, you're clearly undergoing the change. It's time to sever your ties to your old life. You say goodbye. You let go of your children. You hand them off to new guardians. You say goodbye to your spouse. And it is drilled into every member of this little culture from pretty much the day they're born and old enough to understand words. When the change comes, you have to go to the pit of everlasting blue fire 
for the cleansing with a capital C. And what this is going to entail is a whole ritual. You'll be painted with some runes. Some people will say some magic words over you. And then basically you're going to step over the edge and fall into the fire and be burnt up before you can completely lose your mind and wind up immolating the entire culture. Essentially, this is an entire culture built around this ritual sacrifice for its own protection and preservation. And as our heroes investigate, uh, what's happening is that a single member of this culture, a young woman named Nimur, who has recently had uh, an infant, has decided she doesn't want to go through with this. She feels that she's being lied to, that she's being cheated. She resists the cleansing. Normally, her people could have handled this and it would have gotten sorted out internally. But at the moment that she chooses to defy convention, external factors get involved, tip the balance in her favor, and all hell breaks loose with our characters caught in the middle. So that's pretty much the story behind book one. And I think that some of its inspirations have to be pretty obvious. There's a strong Logan's Run element at work here. It's pretty clear that uh, the, the, the wardens who are sent to hunt her down are very much based on the Sandmen uh, from Logan's Run. Uh, the red glowing eyes is kind of like the red glowing chip in the hand. So obviously it owes a creative debt to Logan's Run. I'm not going to deny that. Um, but it's just a, a classic story of, you know, does the greater good always outweigh the needs of the one or are, mm. or are there cases where the one should be allowed to defy the needs of the few or the many and what happens when you make that choice and you're wrong hmm. well and it's so interesting because you know often in tos the the aliens falsely believe something to be dangerous or harmful to them and, and in this novel you know, you really just turn that around so that, mm -hmm. you know, the audience, I think, as you're reading it, is surprised that everything that the aliens, you know, believe and said was that actually happened actually happens. Exactly. So what it's, was it's like the apple, but in reverse. Exactly. Right. So what was kind mm -hmm. of some of the uh, thinking behind crafting that situation? Well, what we wanted to create was a scenario where people who maybe mean well let's say our heroes, try to do what they perceive to be the right thing, the noble thing, the merciful thing, only to find out that what they've done is remarkably short-sighted and wrong because they don't understand what they're tampering with. Mm -hmm. In that regard, it's, just, it's a classic cautionary tale for why does the Prime Directive exist at all? It's because you might have perfectly good intentions, but if you act without a complete set of information, you can make horribly wrong decisions that have massive negative repercussions for a lot of people, which is exactly, of course, what unfolds, but not necessarily at the fault of our characters. I think as one will guess when one sees the cover of the book, which has a Klingon starship on it, it's pretty clear who's involved in messing things <laughs> up on the face of the planet. But there's some fun stuff going on there. I, I like to play with conventions of uh, what do we think the Klingons are like? What is their culture like? Um, I, I raise a few questions, you know, that Keith DeCandido explored in a number of his IKS Gorkon books and his Klingon Empire books, which was, although we are presented with the Klingons as this uniform, monolithic warrior culture, well, who's growing the food? Who's building the ships? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, who's teaching the kids to read the language in the first place? Someone's yeah. got to do these jobs. And yet the entire culture is built around this veneration of the warrior class 
almost to the detriment of every other segment of their society. Mm -hmm. And it's perhaps not the most sustainable model. They've made it work because to a certain degree, they still embrace uh, conquest and a measure of slavery. But in the long run, if you can't sustain an empire on that basis, it's not a sustainable model. Yeah, I have an entire block on one page highlighted in the book, David, the, the block where you go into it, that exact thing, because I was just talking yesterday, actually, with James Swallow and Alec Peters about the same subject, how the Klingon mm -hmm. culture, there must be, I think we even said there must be Klingon accountants. Of course, they're ruthless <laughs> on the balance sheet, but they have to exist, right? Somebody has to know how much we made. What's the point mm -hmm. of having this massive far-flung empire if nobody can tell you where the profits are happening? Exactly. When you And you can't enjoy it because you don't have any money because you haven't been taking care of it. Right. That's right. Of course, I mean, we've been told, you know, that they don't have the best medical science or their medical science is not at the same level as Federation medical science because the notion is, you know, the warrior, you know, uh, should die in battle. And yeah, I'm like, yeah, well, that's great. What about the guy who gets in the hover car accident? Right. What about the <laughs> farmer who gets injured when the thresher breaks, throws a rod and, you know, blasts off part of his leg? He's not a warrior. He didn't ask to get wounded. And he shouldn't have to die so that you can have kava root or something. It, it's ridiculous. It, it, we're off subject. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's funny because uh, Chris and I have, well, have talked about this before. And I think we've talked about it yeah. uh, even with uh, Keith when we did the uh, the oh, art the of Klingon War. war. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, Yeah, well, we're not completely off subject because this does play a, a bit of a role here. But mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah. and it is, in fact, one of the key sources of conflict between the Klingon scientist Tormog and his peers, uh, who are almost all, to a fault, military men. And as a result, he's constantly getting slapped down, belittled, ridiculed. His opinion is never taken seriously. His advice is repeatedly ignored. And as a consequence, of course, the Klingons suffer their own horrible consequences. And in a way, I guess you could say that's got to be some sort of allegory for people who are too stupid or too arrogant to listen <laughs> to the advice of their scientists. Mm -hmm. I just warned you that if you keep doing this, you're all going to die. Oh, shut <laughs> yeah. up. What do you know? You're just a scientist. Oh, look at that. We're all about to die. <laughs> right. Crap. <laughs> I, I, I actually uh, I really enjoyed that part of the book when they all just kind of reap their comeuppance for, for just not paying attention, you know, not being willing to, to open their minds just a little bit to listen uh, that this might be a bad idea. And you kind of would have thought that the Klingons <laughs> may have learned from the augment situation, especially Kang. Um, yep. But apparently not because they're trying so to do much. the same thing again. <laughs> I think one of my favorite lines, I, I just pulled up the book because I wanted to find it. It's, uh, I think it's, it's the point of view of Kang. Feckler laughs at me from the flames of Grethor. I don't know why that line makes me laugh. It just does. Yeah. No, I think it's when he sees the endeavor bearing down on Feckler uh, laughs at me from the flames of Grethor. Well, so. you know, you, you defied, I think a lot of the readers expectations and, and what happens with these aliens um, but some of the conversations that are had in the book i thought were really interesting i mean you, we end up talking about you know what does make the good life you know uh, about the needs of the many the needs of the few mm -hmm. uh, the use of power 
faith in tradition and even kind of seeing absolute power kind of begin to corrupt very quickly. And very um, absolutely. And this, yeah, exactly. And the, and the storyline plays out too, I think, uh, a little bit like the Garden of Eden. Oh, there's definitely an element of that. I mean, I, one of the things that's uh, interesting about religion, whether one subscribes to it uh, as a matter of faith or not, is that it contains a lot of the seeds of moral teaching in allegorical form. And as a result, it's great storytelling, much of it. So I think that's part of why we see Garden of Eden parables play out again and again in different uh, story settings. So I think, yeah, you're right. That was clearly part of it. And biblical influences have always been big in my work, particularly in the Vanguard saga, where there was uh, you know, kind of a whole thing going on with the Shaddai sort of representing fallen angels, or at the very least the apostate, who's clearly an analog for Satan. Uh, he's, you know, has a lot of his lines in Reap the Whirlwind uh, were basically paraphrased from Paradise Lost, from Satan's lines. Mm -hmm. And then you've also got uh, the Destiny trilogy that I wrote, where, you know, it's basically a, a female Christ myth for the Borg. It's, yep. it's, it's the Christ myth for the Borg. So, yeah, I, I can definitely see how my brain would have pulled a Garden of Eden mm. uh, allegory out of this. Well, and really what I loved, too, about this, because we don't really see this in, in, in Star Trek, I think, proper a lot, uh, except for maybe in Deep Space Nine. But the fact that, you know, faith in something can actually be a good thing, like from the Bajoran point of view and with Cisco, um, all of that pans out pretty well. And so with these aliens, their belief in their shepherds who have told them these things keeps their society functioning well. Keeps it from imploding. Yeah, exactly. And it also keeps the galaxy safe. And so that there's some validity to even if you don't necessarily ascribe to all of it, there's there's some real validity to uh, the things that we do see in in religion or, uh, you know, traditional beliefs, uh, mm -hmm. because there there's some element of truth in there. Although not to spoil too much for book two, we are then going to be taking some of these ideas that we postulate in book one and turning a number of them on their head in book two, as the Endeavor crew digs deeper, learns more truths, gathers more information, uh, they're going to find that, you know, sometimes the solution that was introduced, although it seems to have been the best solution, it's maybe just the best solution somebody had at the time, that right. maybe there is another way. And so there's going to be some fun reversals coming up in the second half of the opening story. And uh, I really hope folks who enjoy the first book pick up the second half to see how it uh, continues, because we really had a lot of fun putting the story together. And there's some great visuals and big action moments, particularly at the end of book two, where I remember at one point we were sort of going back and forth and we were saying, well, what about this? What about that? And then saying, oh, well, you know, if we did this and then this effect could affect the entire island, that would be really movie magic moment. And we all went. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, and and that's what I wanted to just to compliment you guys on is that you know Seekers is set in the TOS era and it's in a part of space that we've never seen before. And I think it just really showed just what you can do that's really interesting um when you have a, a lot of, you know, pretty much an open book of what you can do. Mm -hmm. You know, it 
it, it just kind of spoke to me look jj verse you can do this stuff and it can be great so let's let's hop on this kind of bandwagon of doing something we haven't seen before because that's the whole point of your new universe and i liked seeing that that you guys are in this prime universe you're mm -hmm. tied to all this mythology and yet you're still doing some things that we've never seen before and having a great time doing it. And it's it, like you just said, it's like movie magic. I would love to see this stuff on screen. Well, who knows? Maybe the folks behind Star Trek Axanar, like Alec Peters, will eventually decide to, uh, you know, bring Star Trek Seekers to the screen as a, a web awesome. series or something. That would be cool. I would be down with it if they yeah. want to do it. Uh, I mean, so I cool. can't officially be involved with it, but, uh, you know, I can wink and nod and pretend <laughs> i didn't see it <laughs> happened to you know accidentally share it on all my social media feeds yeah i mean it, it wasn't it wasn't me i don't run my no, own social someone media wrote a worm it got that. into my twitter it got into my facebook and it posted all this stuff <laughs> yeah i can't imagine how i posted all this stuff in the new star trek seekers web series i, I can't imagine for for you, um, you know, you got a chance to to write Clark Terrell, and uh, for fans who who don't know everything like some of us, um, <laughs> that's uh, the captain from the Reliant from um, the Wrath, Wrath of Khan. And so, um, talk about just kind of uh, you know, with TOS, you run this uh, in this era where Kirk is king. You know, he's the prototypical captain. But you know, just how do you make um, captains different and 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 interesting without them kind of having to feel like they all need to be pseudo Kirks? Well, it's interesting in that you know, we also wanted to have the two captains for Seekers be very different from one another. So we have Clark Terrell, who you know is kind of a just an interesting guy. He doesn't have to yell. He's soft spoken. He's a scientist first, but he's also you know, uh, we describe him as having the mind of a scientist and the hands of a prize fighter uh, because he actually, you know, was a boxer at Starfleet Academy and he's pretty good at it. And we're going to see a lot more of him in book three when he's going to lead the away team instead of sending his XO to do it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is tricky not to just build lots of little faux Kirks. I think what we have in Terrell is a man of a very even disposition with kind of a wry and ironic sense of humor, uh, almost fatalistic at times. And, you know, he's the guy who came up into this job through battlefield promotion when his captain, Captain Nasir, was killed at the end of Vanguard in Storming Heaven. And he field promoted the, uh, I think, the science officer or second officer, uh, Vanessa Terrio, to be his new XO at the end of Storming Heaven. And she remains in that job now and is adapting to being in a, uh, a command billet as opposed to a science billet. So that was sort of an interesting challenge is to try and define his personality. And he's really just kind of a guy who will walk into a room and if something strange is going on, he'll just drink it in. He'll nod and he won't freak out. He won't react right away. He's, he's kind of a slow burn. That's, I think, Terrell's personality in, in a nutshell. He's a slow burn. As opposed to Atish Katami, who is the captain of the Endeavor, this is a woman of uh, Iranian ancestry, uh, Muslim faith, uh, but it's a more liberal Muslim faith that has evolved into the 23rd century. And, you know, she's married to a civilian, uh, a guy with a Japanese name, Kenji. They have children who live on Deneva, yada, yada, yada. And 
Atish is very much a captain in the Kirk mold in that she will take no crap. If you get in her face, she's prepared to throw down. She will tussle. But she also is driven by a strong moral core. She has a belief in what she considers to be Allah and, you know, is not, you know, above praying to Allah or, you know, invoking Allah at times when she feels under stress. So she is a woman who has reconciled religious faith, uh, you know, in, um, you know, to find meaning or to provide purpose in life, while at the same time accepting the validity of science as a way to understand the physical universe around her. So she's an interesting and complicated figure at the center seat of the endeavor. And uh, we've really grown to love her over the years that we've been writing her. She started out as the XO on the Endeavor, and she also got promoted when her captain died in the second Vanguard book. And that came about partly because we had a female starship commander in the first book in Harbinger, and her ship got blown up and destroyed in battle in the middle of the first book. And when Dayton and Kevin came in to write book two, Summon the Thunder, they realized that all the command billets were filled by men. Uh, so they deliberately crafted a storyline which involved killing off the Chinese captain of the uh, Endeavor, Zhao Sheng, having him die heroically during a landing uh, operation, and having his XO have to step up and take the center seat during a, a very tense crisis period that really put her through the crucible. So she's come a long way since then and uh it's it's been a lot of fun sort of developing their different styles of command katami and Terrell, and seeing how each of them is ideally suited to the ship they command well and that kind of leads me to the question you know with this series kind of alternating between you writing one and then dayton and kevin writing the other um just talk about the difference between the two styles uh that you guys have well, it's hard to assess because like many writers, I don't think of myself as having a style. I just write the words that I would think to write. I'm told by some that it amounts to a style. I have no idea what that style is. <laughs> if I were to compare, say, chapters that I write to chapters that Dayton and Kevin write, I think it looks to me as if I prefer shorter sentences than they do. They tend to have a more complex sentence structure. Uh, they tend to be more likely to use recursive uh, structures, recursive grammar in some of their uh, paragraphs. I tend to be uh, very succinct. I tend to go for direct uh, declarative and imperative statements. Um, beyond that, I mean, I, I guess, you know, the only other major difference would be I try to strip away every bit of backstory and recapping that I possibly can so that only the bare minimum is left to sort of tell you what you need to know to understand what's happening in the moment. And I try to just abandon or jettison everything else. Dayton and Kevin are a little more generous when they give you backstory. They give you a little bit more texture. Some people say, well, that makes their stuff read a little bit slower but on the other hand it also makes their work a little bit richer and that's a stylistic choice that's a trade-off they like to have a little bit more of that rich texture uh that you get of knowing the full history of knowing the context whereas i tend to be mostly about 
this is what's relevant plot wise. This is what you need to know so that you're not totally confused as I move forward into this next thing. And oh, look, something just blew up. Let's get back. To it. <laughs> Somebody just died. Right. So, I mean, uh, beyond that, um, I think it's going to have to be for someone else to, you know, do a side by side comparison of style. I'm too close to it. I, mm-hmm. I yeah. wouldn't know really yeah. where to begin. I really, uh, I really liked, um, some of the things that you kind of threw in references. I, I loved the, the whole into darkness, uh, underwater starship underwater. The, the fact that that almost happened. Yeah. I really enjoyed that too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought it was great. Um, I, I enjoyed your allusion to the, the, the drive for the Rover being very much, uh, from hunt for October. Oh, yeah. Which was awesome. Oh, yeah. I, I I literally cheered. I was reading the book and I was like, oh, yes, I love this. This is Hunt for October, one of the best <laughs> exactly. movies ever. Exactly. Um, so, um, and again, I just, it, it really was funny to me to see the Klingons um, messing with genes of dangerous aliens. I mean, I, I don't understand why they didn't learn from the augments that this is probably a really bad idea. How often do people ever really learn that's, from their mistakes? I guess that's true. Particularly culture. <laughs> An individual Almost might never. learn from a mistake. Cultures almost never do. Right, exactly. Well, and I think that that makes for, as you guys are kind of working through in it, you know, the, I feel like the Klingons are probably going to be at the doorstep every once in a while. And, and that's a really interesting thing to discover, how the Klingons kind of in the 23rd century, as you move forward, there there is a change in their 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 line of thinking as you move forward and especially obviously by the time we get to the next generation so there is some things that that happen to them um well you see that in the movies of course i mean you see that particularly in star trek six where as they were ramping up on praxis praxis basically explodes uh ruins the home world causes an ecological crisis probably massive fatalities uh, economic damage, logistical problems, environmental problems. And this probably forced them to rethink the management of the empire from a logistical and economical and military standpoint. Mm-hmm. Not to mention, yep. forced them to shift their emphasis from, say, technologies of war to technologies of environmental restoration, mm. just out of sheer necessity. But, you know, again, that that was covered, you know, in the movies. Um Fun little thing, like you talk about fun references. Like what I love is that the name of the moon that explodes at the beginning of Star Trek Six, Praxis. Praxis is a Greek term that means action. Basically, mm. what begins? Action. <laughs> Someone says action, and something explodes on screen, and the story begins. Praxis is essentially an instigating event in Greek drama. So when the moon Praxis explodes, it's basically a writer's in joke. Mm-hmm. Of yeah, course. That- very the instigating you know, a moon named after the Greek instigating event of drama. These so, things amuse me because I'm a geek. I'm sorry. Hey, that's okay. I, <laughs> I appreciate that kind of stuff too. Um, because not everybody will pick it up, but for those people that, that do pick it up, it, it gives you just kind of a little bit more enjoyment of what's yeah. going on. Um, so future of seekers, you know, uh, what's on the mm-hmm. horizon, you know, kind of past this first storyline. I know that, um, it's been announced that you and, and, and Kevin and, uh, Dayton will be writing books three and four. Mm-hmm. Um, so anything you can kind of hint at what might be sure. coming there. I can tell you a little bit. I can tell you that unlike the first two books, which have a single storyline 
spread across the two books, which is part of why they were released back to back, you know, one month to the next. Books three and four are going to be spaced apart a little bit in the schedule. Each one will be a standalone story uh, with no real narrative crossover between them. This is where we start uh, exploring the individual crews and the ships and their missions on their own for a little while before we try another crossover. Star, uh, Star Trek Seekers number three is going to be called Long Shot. And I'm going to start writing that book in a few weeks. I'm currently working on another project for a different publisher at the moment. I'm scrambling against that deadline. And as soon as I get this book that I'm currently writing finished, I move on and I immediately start writing Star Trek Seekers number three, which is due to the publisher sometime in very early December. Dayton and Kevin, I believe, will be starting work on the outline for Star Trek Seekers number four next month. I don't know that they've settled on a story direction yet. I had sent them the outline for Seekers number three just so they would know what it was I was doing. Uh, not because it's necessarily going to impact what they're doing, but because I just wanted them to know this is the kind of story I'm telling just so you don't accidentally duplicate it or come too close to it. Mm-hmm. So we don't wind up looking like we're repeating each other. So beyond that, I have no idea what they have planned for number four. I would like to keep some secrets as to what I've got planned for number three. And I can say that the artist, Rob Caswell, has been contacted by the publisher, by the art department, and they've told him that they would like to start seeing preliminary sketches and concept work for cover art for book three in about three weeks. All right. Which is about when I'm going to start writing the book. Rob has my outline. He knows what I'm doing in terms of a story. We've started throwing some ideas around. I've thrown some references, images, uh, reference images at him to say, I'm thinking of something like this. If it's possible, you know, if you want to go in a different direction, let's talk about that. He's begun picking my brain to say, well, what do you think this would look like? And what do you think that would look like? And how do you think we want to approach this or that? So we're throwing some ideas around to see how we feel about uh, different concepts on the cover. That's so cool. I I love his artwork. Uh, He did the special uh, poster for you guys for Shore Leave. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which I was so excited Dayton snagged me a copy and is going to send it to me. So I'm, oh, you lucky dog. I know. I I am very excited, uh, mainly yeah. because, you know, I, I live here in, in Seattle now, and it's very hard to get to the East Coast for a convention like that. So, yeah, yeah that's some fantastic artwork, and I can't wait to see what he'll do with uh, book three and four, because this really is, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, you could blow up and, and you put it on your wall, and it would mm-hmm. look great next to, you know, say like a Star Trek six movie poster or something. It, it's yeah. that good. In fact, he did full-size posters for oh, me wow. and Dayton and Kevin as gifts oh, cool. that he gave to us at Shorely this year, where in addition to these you know, faux book covers he had done for his Imaginary Seekers series, he had also done just as a hobby, just for fun. What led him to the Seekers project was he wanted to reimagine the old Blish covers, where he basically took the typography style and mm-hmm. the lines or whatever and their text, but he reimagined the art using 3d modeling and the ability to put things in different oh, okay. relations. I know what you're yeah. oh, Cool. And he did basically new covers mm-hmm. for all 12 of those original Blish anthologies, which was really fun. And wh- cool. one of the things that he did that the original artists on those books did not was he tried to find moments, uh, iconic moments from the episodes that were novelized in each volume 
and then pick out one of those moments to turn into the cover. So mm-hmm. whereas the covers on those anthologies from the seventies often bear little or no relation to the stories within Rob's reimagined covers did. And then what he did is he took the, that assortment of 12 book covers and he turned them into, you know, a, a grid, uh, a three by four grid on a, a standard size poster. And he basically turned that into this really elegant, beautiful looking poster. And he made three prints in his print shop because uh, he runs a digital uh, art and print shop. And he made three of these prints just for me, Dayton and Kevin. Oh, cool. Here's a fun story. So awesome. This digital print shop that he runs, his little digital art studio type thing. He runs it out of a sort of a, a repurposed industrial space in a town called East Hampton, Massachusetts. I grew up in East Hampton, Massachusetts. That's awesome. We figured out when we were comparing histories after I sort of contacted him and told him about the gig, we were comparing histories, you know, how long he'd lived in the area when I lived in the area, <laughs> yeah. where he used to work, where I used to work. And we figured out that he probably worked at a place called Moondance Comics in the Hoyoke Mall at the same time that I was regularly buying my comics at Moondance Comics. Oh, cool. Wow. This is the guy who very likely was on duty some weekends when I would come in. He probably sold me some of my issues of Moon Knight, Mage, Grendel, Spider-Man, Doctor Strange, some of the comics that I still have. He's probably the guy who took my money and bagged them for me. That is awesome. Yeah. That is so small cool. world, huh? And now he, it turns out when I was trying to track him down to get in touch with him to give him the good news, uh, back after we got the green light from Pocket and from uh, Star Trek, I was tracking him down using, you know, Google and Facebook and, and stuff like that. And I discovered like we had a friend in common. It turns out he's friends on Facebook with a girl I went to high school with. Oh, and that wow. sort of, and that was how I first figured out where he is, and started piecing this together. And I went, "You got to be kidding me!" That's so great. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome! It's the craziest thing. Man, that there you go. It, it's definitely Star Trek Kis- Destiny. It's kismet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, David, uh, what's uh, coming up next for you that uh, people need to get? One, we want to mention obviously that uh, Seekers Two is actually going to be coming out next week. That's on Tuesday, the 26th of August. So um, if you've read David's book, which hopefully you have, Seekers 1, you're going to be wanting to get Seekers 2. By, Point of Divergence. That's right, by Kevin Dilmore and Dayton Ward um, to follow up what happens in your story because it is very much a cliffhanger, just as the classic TNG cliffhangers like The Best of Both Worlds or any of the rest of them, this one leaves you hanging. And I think we pay it off. I mean, granted, I'm I'm biased. Maybe my opinion can't be trusted, but I really think we, <laughs> we paid this story off well. And I think it comes to both a very uh, exciting and very satisfying and very Star Trek feeling conclusion that Excellent. I think readers will appreciate. As far as what I have coming up next, on October 28, my next novel, Star Trek Section 31 Disavowed, yes. will go on sale from all of your favorite retailers. Disavowed continues a storyline featuring Dr. Julian Bashir that uh, I began back in my Typhon Pack novel, Zero Sum Game, and which I continued in my book for the miniseries, The Fall. My novel was titled The Ceremony of Losses. And in, at the end of A Ceremony of Losses, Bashir basically has sacrificed his career and risked going to prison to save the Andorian species uh, from their ongoing fertility crisis. 
using information he had to steal with help from Section 31. And now in the wake of the events of the fall, he is finally getting his opportunity to infiltrate Section 31 as part of his long-term plan to take them down from within. And this book also, uh, Disavowed, also follows up on two of my other previous novels to one degree or another. It picks up on events that were depicted in my Mirror Universe novel, Rise Like Lions. And it also continues storylines that were established in my Cold Equations novel, Silent Weapons. So five of my previous books have all led up to this next book. So there's some, uh, some fun stuff for you. As far as what else I've got going on, I have a novelette uh, called Hell Road With Her, which is uh, set in World War II, and it's basically black magic plus uh, World War II period piece. That's going to be part of an anthology called Apollo's Daughters. I'm not sure of the release date on that. I'm hoping it'll be out in time for Christmas, but we'll see. I have an original novel that's out making the rounds, trying to find a good home. I'm hoping a publisher will decide to take it in, give it a nice home, feed it, and give it a marketing campaign. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, of course, have Star Trek Seekers 3, which I'm going to be writing, which should be out next summer. And I am under contract for one more Section 31 book, which will follow up on Disavowed. All right. All right. Cool. I do have more stuff coming down the pike and uh, big plans beyond that. So where can everybody find you online and follow you and catch up with you uh, when you're not doing podcasts or, or, of course, writing the myriad of books that you do? Let's see. You can find me at my website, davidmack.pro. That's David, M-A-C-K dot P-R-O. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash the David Mack. That's my official author page. You can like that. You can also friend me on Facebook if you can find me. I'm not particularly precious about it. I'd just like to see some evidence that I'm being friended by an actual fan and not a robot <laughs> or a spammer. Mm-hmm. You can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is David Allen Mack, A-L-A-N-M-A-C-K, David Allen Mack. And uh, that's about it uh, in terms of my social media. My blog is part of my website. And uh, you can keep up with all of my latest book news and book releases through my website. I post everything there. I update my bibliography page pretty frequently. And you can also order autographed and inscribed books through my website. I have a store page. You can see what inventory I have available. You can place orders, pay for them through PayPal, and I ship them out. Lickety split. I even do international shipping, but you have to email me for that. Mm. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, David, for for coming back to the show. It's always just a pleasure to get to talk about the behind the scenes look at, at the books and especially with a brand new series. And I do have to say that this, I think, does everything you wanted it to. Um, it does capture that TOS spirit um, and it's fun, you know, um, and it's been great because, you know, uh, we just had um, uh, Jeffrey Lang's book come mm-hmm. out and, and with data i mean yeah. it, mm-hmm. such a fun book and then to have this follow that up it, it's like um uh, just an overload i think of fun but that, in some ways that's what the star trek universe kind of needs right now we've had a lot of doom and gloom um and yeah. now we're really reaping the benefits of some of those stories and it's great so thank you so much i'm glad you're enjoying it and i'm glad to hear you use the term fun as the chief descriptor because that's really what we were going for yeah it comes through definitely does 
Great. Well, yeah, thanks for your time today, David. And Matthew and I definitely will look forward to talking to you about Disavowed down the road because we are big Niners. Absolutely. I will look forward to talking with you guys about Disavowed as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Have a good night. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate being here. Well, Matthew, it was great of David to drop by and talk to us about Seekers today. I always enjoy it when David's here because he's just so succinct in the explanation of everything. You know, he mentioned that he's been a full-time writer now for about six years, and I really feel like you can feel that this stuff is just on his mind continuously. Yeah, I think you're right. And it was interesting. I I was talking to my fiance and uh, we're just talking about who we were interviewing and you know, David has a way of just being able to explain what's going on in just a, such a clear way um, with mm-hmm. the storyline or what he's trying to tell you uh, about uh, exactly. his process yeah. and everything. And I just so mm-hmm. appreciate it. It's fantastic. And so I really like the Seeker series. Uh, it started off, honestly, just with a bang. So if mm-hmm. you haven't gone out and read this, please go out and do so. I think you're going to really enjoy it. And it's a great new series for Star Trek. You know, um, we have had uh, some some great books in Star Trek that have had nothing to do with, you know, uh, a TV series. You know, we've had obviously the Vanguard series and now we've got the Seeker series. Um, you know, there's been other series like the New Earth series and things like that mm-hmm. uh, where they just really built off of this whole universe that we have to play with. And I, I really do love that. And um to me, yeah. you know, with the fact that uh, Titan is now back in the Alpha Quadrant for a while, who knows where if they'll go back. This is kind of in some ways, I think, taking its place full on just exploration of a part of space that we don't know a lot about. And, mm-hmm. you know, does anybody remember when we used to be explorers? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. If you like TOS, you'll love this because I think I described it to you yesterday on iChat, right, as... It, it captures the spirit of TOS, but with a bit of a modern sensibility oh, to yeah, it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's funny. So, I mean, the, the the series, I think, is funny and a lot of fun. And as we talked about with uh, David, that's exactly what they were going for. And I think they mm-hmm. just nailed it. Yeah, definitely. Well, Seekers isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network this past week. So here's a quick look at some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Everything that we do has to exist inside of this little box. This and, window, yeah. if you will. Right. And you can you can do whatever you want inside there, but once you step outside, you know, it's the real world. Earl Grey. That's, you know what I mean? And then Star Trek V is all about crapping all over <laughs> the rest of the movies. That just <laughs> Axonar, the official podcast. When you're in the edit bay, as soon as you put one image next to another, it's this instant gratification. It's this great creative jolt, which happens every time you start juxtaposing your images. And when you start seeing things fall into place, it's it's really galvanizing and it's really thrilling, actually. And I love feeding off that kind of, of energy. The ready room. Well, you know, time is not really linear, Char. So the monkey, he's always been there and he always will be. <laughs> I take the Janeway stance on time travel. It gives me a headache. The Orb. Batman also creates a contingency plan for all the other superheroes just in case something goes wrong with them. 
So it. So what does he do for the Wonder Twins, for example? Like, how is he going to take them out? If um, I think he just separates them eternally, so they okay. can't smack their hands together. To the journey. We have like a whole bunch of geek aliens. Like they're wearing their own superhero T-shirts. They're eating <laughs> hot pockets. They have headphones oh on, and they're all in their own little, you know, twenty-fourth century room. But they're like, dude, dude, I totally just pwned the Voyager. Commentary: Trek stars and underlines the goal of Prexy Gail Berman to re-energize the pipeline while revitalizing the PAR brand with top-tier talents such as Abrams. I love Trace. You have They're no so... idea what you're saying at this point. Warp 5. He can put her mind at ease about these kinds of things because he can just, you know, you know how Trip is, like, let's, you know, let's have some catfish and, like, just hang out. You know <laughs> I was just thinking that. <laughs> Continuing mission. We actually spoke with uh, CBS legal team, and uh, that was one of the things that we that we had told them is that we all of our visuals were all original scenes. All of our animation was going to be original. All of our music would be original. So we would not be stealing any content from the original era, mm-hmm. and and they liked that a lot. Literary tricks. And I just love that because it is very true. You know, Picard in some ways kind of has that Yodaness about him where he will kind of speak in a riddle and he wants you to figure it out. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. You'll find us all over the place. Just search for Trek.fm or the name of the show that you want to listen to and you'll find us there. And be sure to grab the master feed as well. And you can get every show that we do, every episode and some other special content in that feed. It's a great way to sample other shows that you may not have heard yet. Also, of note to Star Trek book fans, Matthew, I sort of unexpectedly recorded a show with James Swallow yesterday. We were able to snag James early in the morning over there in the UK to talk about Star Trek Axanar. So Alec Peters and I sat down with James and talked for, I think we recorded about 40 minutes for the show. We actually talked for about two hours. It was really, really interesting. It's interesting to hear uh, James, as a Star Trek author, his take on how Axanar is expanding upon very small tidbits from the Star Trek universe, from the TOS era as well. That'll be out in uh, after this episode of Literary Treks drops, probably about a week or so from now. So if you don't listen to the Axnar podcast, but you love hearing from the authors, keep your eyes out for that episode. It's going to be episode seven of the official Star Trek Axnar podcast. That's awesome. I love getting to talk to James. I'm, I'm glad you finally did, Chris, get a chance to have him on a show. We usually have yeah, that time Yeah, the time, time zones difference. never work yeah. out for us, right? So it's usually so, just you and James for the feature when he's on here, yeah. And like you said, best part about talking with James is you will get a good chance to talk after the show for about 20, 30 minutes, just about any yeah. Star Trek idea that comes to your mind because he yeah. really does know his stuff. He really, really does. So so that was great. So keep your eyes open for that. And then uh, speaking of podcasts, Matthew, we've gotten a lot of reviews recently as part of our promotion, and we're going to be announcing winners on that soon. I've got to get everything uh, collated and, you know, we have to do the drawing and everything. But we wanted to share reviews with you here on the show. And I don't think we've covered many of them the past couple of weeks. We may duplicate a review here. I'm not sure. I just want to make sure I don't leave anyone out. So we're going to read some of them today and a few of them next week. And the first one here, Matthew, is from Eric the Mailman 
in Canada, who you and I talked to on Twitter quite a bit. And Eric gave us five stars in the Canadian iTunes store and said, a great way to navigate the novels. I find jumping into the novels a daunting experience. These guys can really help guide you to where you might want to start. I love the author interviews too. And we also have one from WLDKT1 in the U.S. store. Five stars. Love my Trek books. This show has great interviews with the authors of Trek fiction and nonfiction. It also keeps me up to date with what's going on in the literary Trek world. Then also in the U.S. store, 17 Brian, that's Brian with a Y, just like me, said, eat any good books lately? (laughs) Literary Treks can be a good way to decide which Trek book to read next. Thanks to them, I was made aware of the ebook that wrapped up the Vanguard series. Which was our very first show with Dayton Ward. It was actually, wasn't it? Yeah, all the way back then. I think this is actually, that's a thing here, Matthew, and something we really appreciate from everyone who's listening, especially those of you who have found the show recently, who have gone all the way back to episode one and are listening through our entire back catalog straight through. And we have a lot of people who tell us that that's what they're doing. And we really, really appreciate that. Yeah, for sure, Chris, especially since, I mean, we didn't even mention it, but you know, this is the 73rd show that we've had. So we've been going for a while now. It is. It's amazing uh, how long we've been going with all of this. So, so that one is from 17 Brian. Also, Phasers to Wellsby has a leftist review, five stars, great for readers and those who are behind. I don't get to read as much Star Trek as I would like, so it is really nice to have people who can keep me informed about what is happening in that world. A lot of their discussions about books I haven't read has encouraged me to make the time to squeeze those books into my schedule. And then also Trey34 left us review. Great review of books and more. The hosts do a great job of reviewing books and comics of Star Trek. They also interview the authors. Give a listen if you like to read. And then one more for today, and then we'll read the rest of them next time. Chappie5574, who, Matthew, this is funny. You know how small the world is. So a lot of listeners know the story of John Champion from Mission Log and me, which is that we lived basically down the road from each other in high school in Birmingham, Alabama. Never met. He lived in the same neighborhood with a lot of my classmates in high school, but he went to a different high school. And then we met each other on Twitter three or four years ago, I guess it was, and found out that we actually live so close to each other. And now we're both doing Star Trek podcasts. Well, it turns out Chappie 5574 here is also from Alabama. Oh, nice. Also went to the University of Alabama like me, was there overlapping the time I was there for several years, although I don't think we ever met, and is from the town that my grand aunt is from. And she used to be the postmaster of the town and probably actually knows his family. Oh my gosh, Chris, that's hilarious. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's so awesome. So uh, Chappie5574 here says, what to read, what to read. If you like Star Trek literature, then look no further. Need help deciding what to read next? Then let Literary Treks help you sort the wheat from the chaff. Great author interviews as well. So thanks so much for that review, and thank you everyone who's reviewed us. And like I said, I don't want to leave anyone out, so we're going to read, but we also don't want to make the show too extremely long, so we're going to cover the rest of them next week. And for everyone else who hasn't reviewed us yet, please drop by and leave us a review. It helps other fans find the show in iTunes. There are a lot of fans of Star Trek books and comics out there who 
you know, may not know the show exists. And it's not the easiest thing to find in iTunes either. So we really appreciate your time and leaving us all these reviews and letting us know what you think about the shows. So beyond reviews, if you'd like to share feedback on today's show, the things we talked about, news, seekers, David Mack's work, whatever you want to talk about, there are a number of ways you can get in touch with us. Go to trek.film slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose literary treks, and that will come to us by email, both to Matthew and me. And you can also find us on social media. Our username on Twitter is trekfm, facebook.com slash trekfm. We have a community on G+, forums at trek.film slash forums. And if you look in the left sidebar on the show page on our website or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm, you can actually send us a voicemail. And you don't need to use the telephone or anything. You just need the mic on your web camera, your tablet or your smartphone, and you can upload it to us. And we'd love to hear your voice and even play your voicemails here on the show. So Matthew, when you're not, uh, you know, rearranging your room to open up that perfect space for that poster that Dayton is sending you, where can people find you? Well, Chris, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. I love talking about all things Star Trek, obviously, and then, of course, lots of other things, movies, just whatever you've got on your mind. Give me an at reply, let you know you're following me, and we'll have a great conversation. You can also find me doing The Orb with you, Chris, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. So if you enjoy Deep Space Nine, or gosh, I mean, if you just need to be talked in to love Deep Space Nine, I think Chris and I can probably <laughs> do that for you. <laughs> this is your mission, That's right, right. So to talk everyone into loving Deep Space exactly. Nine. Exactly. So find us there. Um, and then I have my own personal blog. So if you just want to read some movie reviews or some other thoughts I have on lots of different items, you can check me out there at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Now, Chris, when you're not being caught on the camera playing with your little micro machines and, and Hot Wheels toys there on your desk, uh, when you're supposed to be working, where can we find you? <laughs> I'm not playing, Matthew. I'm making videos for my new YouTube channel. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're getting a lot of hits there, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. Well, I will when I upload well, the Okay, videos, okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> So you can find me on Twitter as well. That's probably the best place to find me and communicate with me. And my username there is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. I'm also on Facebook, facebook.com slash C Brian Jones. So feel free to hit me up there or send me a friend request on there. And then I have my website at cbrianjones.com, which I keep swearing I'm going to update. I've got some stuff I want to post there and eventually I'm going to do that. And I'm pretty much everywhere in social media under that username, cbrianjones.com. So... Uh, chat me up there in all those places. And also on the network, I do a lot of different shows. I already mentioned the Axnar podcast where we have James Swallow coming up on there. And Matthew and I do the Orb. There's also Warp 5, The Ready Room, Continuing Mission, Matter Stream, Hyper Channel. And I think there's something else, isn't there, Matthew? I, I lose track of all the different shows these days, but there are a lot of them. So Chris, I lost track check- just as you were talking. I was like, oh, did he get them all? <laughs> I know. I can't remember if I got them all or not. So I, I, I do a lot of different shows and I get to talk about a lot of different topics, which I love, and uh, interview a lot of different people, which is a lot of fun. So look up all those shows, find out what else I'm talking about, grab the master feed, which I mentioned, and you can easily find them all right there. And uh, you can hear all the other things that I'm talking about in the world of Star Trek. Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you about our sponsor, audible.com. Go check out that book, Year Zero by Rob Reed narrated by John Hodgman. It's fantastic. It's probably my my favorite humorous book that I've read, science fiction or otherwise, 
since the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So it's it's that good to me anyway. And uh, if you love music and if you also agree that our copyright laws really need to be updated to uh, the modern world, you'll really enjoy this book. And it, just go to audibletrial.com slash trekafilm to get it for free. Remember, if you decide not to stick with Audible, you'll get to keep the book, so nothing to lose. But when you try Audible, it really makes a difference for us. It really helps us keep the show coming to you every single week. So please go and try it out, audibletrial.com slash trekafilm. And we really thank Audible for their support of the show and the network. And we thank you for supporting Audible as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.